Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, this is Eugenio Duarte. I hope you enjoy the interview you're about to listen to. If you do, or if you have ideas for books you'd like to hear about on the show, let me know. Go to my website, eugenioduartephd.com, and click on contact to send me a message. And now on with the interview. Hi, everybody. Welcome to New Books in Psychology. I'm Eugenio Duarte, your host in Miami. Today, we're speaking to Dr. Donald Stern, author of the book, The Infinity of the Unsaid, Unformulated Experience, Language, and the Nonverbal, published in 2019 by Routledge. Donald Stern is a training and supervising analyst at William Ellenson White Institute in New York City and adjunct clinical professor of psychology and clinical consultant at NYU postdoc- postdoctoral program in psychotherapy and psychoanalysis. He is the founder and editor of the Routledge book series, Psychoanalysis in a New Key, and author and editor of many articles and books. His most recent authored book is Relational Freedom, Emergent Properties of the Interpersonal Field, published in 2019. And his landmark book, which started it all, is Unformulated Experience, From Dissociation to Imagination in Psychoanalysis, published in 2003 by Routledge. He is also my former supervisor and teacher at William Ellenson White, so it's a personal pleasure to have him on and talk about his latest book. Don, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. So... You open this book by paying homage to Harry Stack Sullivan, who's widely considered the father of interpersonal psychoanalysis. Could you tell us about the influence he's had on your own thinking? Oh, a lot of influence. But, but Eugenio, may I start by adding something to what you just said? Absolutely. The, uh, for anyone who reads the book, the author's name, my name, is spelled uh, D-O-N-N-E-L, Donald. It's a funny name, funny spelling. And if they look for Don Stern, they're not going to find it. Um, that's number one. Let's see. What was the other? Um, eh, I'll think of it. Let me, let me tell you something about Sullivan. Uh, when I was in graduate school, I, my mentor was a man who had two intellectual heroes and they were very unusual combination then and now. Uh, one of them was Sigmund Freud. The other was Harry Stack Sullivan. So when I, uh, that was in the Midwest, when I came to New York later, Uh, and became a psychoanalyst, the White Institute was a natural fit for me because those are, uh, Sullivan is the founder of interpersonal psychoanalysis, really, along with Eric Fromm. And, and of course, Freud is the founder of psychoanalysis as a whole. So Sullivan has had an influence on me from the beginning. Now, Sullivan had many, many uh, differences from the psychoanalysis of his day. And probably more than we can cover in this in this brief interview. But one of the important things, or maybe the most important thing, is that he substituted interpersonal relations uh, for what really had been drive theory in, in um, the ego psychology, Freudian ego psychology of, of his day. And what he said was that people are, are motivated by events, um, real events that happen between them and other people. 
and not from a biological source of drive uh, in the in the body. It doesn't mean that he didn't have an interest in the body. He did very much so. But um, the interpersonal relations that he focused on became the source of his theory and eventually became the source of interpersonal psychoanalysis. And then actually um, became also the the primary source of relational psychoanalysis. Both interpersonal and relational psychoanalysis are are alive and well today, doing very well. So, you know, I'm jumping way ahead when I say this, but hearing the way you describe Sullivan is emphasizing how interpersonal relations motivate us much more than uh, something something inside us that's that's biological makes me think about your concept of the interpersonal field. And I'm wondering if you could say something about that and how it fits into your into your broader ideas about unformulated experience. Uh, I suppose I'd have to say that the field is the broader idea uh, than than uh, broader than unformulated experience, but they they're, they're pretty much on the same level. Um, let me though go back to the way you began your question. You um, you focused on interpersonal relations, and I should make something clear about that which I know you know, but, um, you know, I want to make it clear for our audience that um, interpersonal relations doesn't just mean what actually transpires in whatever the real world is between people. It has to do with the inner world as well, um, both the inner and the outer. It's just that the origin of the inner world, what what um, uh, in other theories is often called the intrapsychic, is the origin is in interpersonal life, which is uh, internalized, made part of the mind, part of the personality, and, and elaborated actually internally. So there still is, is a focus on the inner life in interpersonal psychoanalysis. It isn't simply a matter of, it's, it's not only sociology, in other words. Okay. Yeah, go ahead. So, so it's a matter, so the difference is a matter of emphasis? Um, no, it actually is a matter of kind, although in the last, uh, uh, well, in the last several decades, there has been an interpersonalization of, of North American psychoanalysis, uh, which, by which I mean that this principle I just have laid out to you uh, very, in a very schematic way uh, has become important to most psychoanalysts, even Freudian psychoanalysts. Um, some of them remain conservative and, and um, intrapsychic and based on a biological concept of drive, but not, not so many as there used to be. Um, remind me now, what was the question? Um, well, so I, I guess what I was interested in was to... Ah, ah, whether it was it was Sorry, go ahead. Whether it was a matter of emphasis. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, no, I, I would say, as, as I started out to say and lost track of, it's a matter of kind. Um, so the, the difference between interpersonal and interpsychic views is the difference between um, life that begins with people right at the beginning. And there's, no, there's no life outside the interpersonal field, uh, which I'll get to in a minute, um, the, the, you know, what the notion of interpersonal field. There's no life outside it. Now, in, in Freud's thinking, and please understand, I'm not criticizing Freud for this because Freud was writing at a time when the, there were the alternative um, conceptualizations were not even being considered. Um, 
but in Freud's conception and, and modern conceptions that grow from that, um, the mind begins in, uh, from the inside out. And eventually the point is that it's the inside that ends up giving shape to the outside. In an interpersonal frame of reference, it's really much more the outside that begins to give shape to the inside. And that shape then is elaborated over time. So it isn't just the outside, as I said before, but it's not just a difference in emphasis. If you do, does that make sense to you? Yes. Um, now you asked me about the field, right? Yes. Well, it isn't my uh, idea, of course, the interpersonal field. It, it comes from, uh, from the entire first generation of interpersonal psychoanalysts and, and before them that matter. Uh, it probably began in the work of the Chicago School of Sociology. Um, James Orton Cooley, uh, George Herbert Mead, and, and others um, for whom the mind was uh, the outcome of social processes. That was a new idea. Sullivan took it on and in his work it's reflected in the concept of, of the field. He didn't have much to say specifically about the nature of the field, but he thought that all um, human events were uh, dependent on a, on, a, on a system of interpersonal relations, as I said. So everything really is going on in a field all the time. He only used that word field, I don't know, 10 or 15 times in all his writings, but all his writings nevertheless um, imply it. There, it's there in everything he ever wrote. The field is a... Um, is a concept that reflects the embeddedness of all human experience in life with other people. Um, that there isn't, there really isn't anything that isn't. The field is what transpires between any two people, or for that matter, a larger group. But in psychoanalysis, we're generally thinking of it as two. Um, it's what transpires between them consciously. Yes, and that's, that's terribly important, but even more importantly, unconsciously, the influences that each is having on the other. So when an analyst and patient are sitting in the room, or a therapist and a patient, um, or as I think uh, a lot of your listeners would probably prefer to say client, um, uh, and we can get into that if you want to, why, why I, I kind of prefer the word patient. Um, but uh, uh, when two people are sitting together and they're, they're doing psychoanalysis, there are unconscious influences passing back and forth between them all the time. This is not magical. It's just that we each have unconscious ways of organizing relationships that we don't actually choose, but that make us up. And it's the task of, of the treatment to, um, allow, to allow that, that field that forms between two people to flow as spontaneously and smoothly as possible. Because, and you ask about unformulated experience, so I, I'm working my way to that, to that idea. Um, the, the field and the events in the field determine the contents of consciousness for both the, for the patient and the analyst. Um, and what, what I mean by that is that what you can experience in another person's presence, and that's true about the, the patient and the analyst's presence or the analyst and the patient's presence, both ways. What you can experience in another person's presence depends upon the nature of the interpersonal field that the two of you are creating between you without even having any, any specific conscious sense that you're doing so, simply by being together. 
and and um, talking with one another, seeing one another. Sometimes uh, people are on the couch, but often they're not. Okay, so um, would you like me to go on then to something about unformulated experience? Absolutely, please. Um, okay, so Freud's notion of the unconscious was that uh, it contained, and he didn't he didn't say it this way because uh, the way I'm about to, because it wasn't, you know, in his in his day and age, there, like I said, there was no alternative. But when we look back at it from our present day vantage point. His unconscious had contents, and the contents were fully formed meanings. Those fully formed meanings, some of them are, are the, those that are repressed or that cause real distress uh, for a person and are therefore kept out of awareness. Um, they are distorted. Um, they're hidden away in a corner of the mind. They're, they're uh, you know, fragmented. Uh, all kinds of things are done to them. So that they are not, um, they, they they cannot play a direct role in shaping consciousness. That would be too painful. Okay. Now I thought, and you know, Freud also has this wonderful way of um, uh, of showing how the emergent properties of the unconscious have to do with with all of our creative moments. That uh, the most creative things we do always grow from sources that are not merely what we know, but sources that we don't. I think you don't have to embrace a theory of the unconscious and psychoanalysis to know that. You know, one of the things I like to say is that um, the words that are coming in, in, out of my mouth as I'm speaking to you uh, are not, I'm not choosing them one after the other and sitting and saying, well, let me see, is it that one or is it that one? Instead, I'm just speaking and there's a certain spontaneous uh, accomplishment of my intention in the words that I speak. The intention shapes the words and the words then feed back and, and shape the next moment's intention. These things all happen in an emergent way, uh, in a way that, that can't be described uh, as, uh, uh, as, as, what should I say, as explicitly conscious. My words are growing from something that goes beyond what it is that I know. And that's a very simple example when you think about it. It gets much more complicated when you talk about all the processes going on between people. Okay. In Freud's theory of the unconscious, then, we have, um, we have this, the idea that meanings are fully formed. And then something has to be done to them if they're not going to be conscious. What I wanted to do when I started writing, incidentally, now I remember the other thing I was trying to remember earlier. Um, the book, Unformulated Experience, uh, the later copies of it do have a publication date of 2003, but that's the reprint. It actually came out in 1997. Um, and uh, the work that I'd been doing in that book went back all the way to 1983. Sorry about that. Thank you for the correction. Oh, sure. It happens all the time because it's right there. It's right there on the page. Um, so what I wanted to do in thinking about um, a theory of the unconscious that for me had interpersonal properties. I wanted to um, give the context of the present moment, both con conscious and unconscious, that is the interpersonal context. Now, going back to what I said a minute ago, the field, the interpersonal field, I wanted to give the field a role in establishing 
um, the nature of what it is that we could be aware of. I've already said that, but let me go back now to it and just add a little bit. The way that I wanted to do that was by suggesting that the unconscious is not made of fully formed meanings, uh, as unconscious fantasies are in Freudian and Kleinian thinking. Instead, I wanted to think of the unconscious or unconscious processes, which I kind of prefer because the unconscious makes it sound like a thing or a place, and it's neither one. Um, I wanted to to give context a, a greater role, the field a greater role. So unconscious contents are not fully formulated. They are what I call unformulated. Unformulated unconscious, uh, the, the unconscious is made of unformulated meanings. What do I mean by that? I mean potential meanings. These are meanings that can be given shape in consciousness, um, but that don't actually have a final shape until the moment in which the, the, they, they come about in awareness. Instead, they're sort of fuzzy things. Uh, they're not things, but they're fuzzy. They, they have a certain fuzzy quality. They are affect-laden. They are global, impressionistic states uh, of mind that are not yet possible to describe in the separate terms of, let's say, words. Okay, so each, uh, it, it, let, let's just be a little concrete here, more concrete than I'm really comfortable being, but just for the sake of explanation. Take a particular piece of unformulated experience. It's potential experience. It has some, there are limits beyond which though you can't, you, you can't formulate it. If I tell you that I went to the bowling alley yesterday when I went to the grocery store, that, one of those is untrue. Um, on the other hand, when I look at the expression on somebody's face, a patient's face, I may be able within a fairly wide range to give a number of different kinds of meaning in my own mind to what it is that I'm experiencing with that person. And of course, what I'm experiencing has to do with my own state too. So the constraints or limits on what this potential experience can become are what define it. and in the moment in which experience comes into explicit being and awareness, it's because the explicit form it takes has to do with that interpersonal field, what's transpiring between these two people. So you can see that from this, from this point of view, the important thing in psychotherapy and psychoanalysis is um, to work with the interpersonal field and you're involved in it. You're involved in it unconsciously, right, with the patient. To work with it in a way that frees it up because if the frozen place thaws in the field it then becomes possible for both the patient and the analyst to think and feel in different ways in novel ways in broader ways than they did before and as long as that place in the field remains frozen that can't happen so this book is um part of a I guess you could say a lineage or a, a series of books that you've published in which you can trace the evolution of your thinking from when you started with unformulated experience in the 80s. What are you adding to or revising in your theory of unformulated experience with this particular book? Well, thank you for asking that question because that really is, um, that is the nature of the book. That's what it's about. 
what happened was uh, a, a couple of books ago, in a book called Partners in Thought, I, um, sorry if you hear the dog barking, I've got- no, That's dog. okay, I like dogs. <laughs> She's a good dog. Um, uh, so a couple of books ago in Partners in Thought, I was writing about the nature of uh, unconscious mutual enactment. Um, and by that, and I have, I've been writing about that for a long time and I still am, but, but it, it came to a, a certain um, crux in that book. And I realized that unconscious mutual enactment, that, what that means is the field is in one of those frozen places and neither the patient nor the analyst can see it clearly enough or know it clearly enough or even understand what's happening. It's a, usually it's a kind of discomfort that overtakes them and the two people don't even know the uh, the limitations on their freedom that this frozen place in the field is is creating. Well, if enactment's a terribly important part of clinical work, or if negotiating enactments, you know, getting through them, making sense of them, or um, breaching them in some way, if that's uh, uh, an important or even the most important part of psychotherapy, then um, uh, what it is that breaks it up, the enactment is terribly important too, right? Do you mind saying something real quickly? Yeah. Uh, those of us who may not know, um, those of our listeners, what an enactment is? Well, an enactment is a rigid, stereotyped interaction in which neither party, both parties are trapped without usually realizing it. Sometimes they do, but most of the time they don't. And it, the an enactment has unconscious sources in both the analyst and the patient's mind. Um, I don't mean to limit it to psychoanalysis. Enactments go on with, between people all the time. But one of the, the reason that they're terribly important in, in psychotherapy and psychoanalysis is that um, these are the problems that people get into with other people. The characteristic problems in a person's life have to do with ways that they can't negotiate with, with, a, the, with an, enough freedom uh, problems that come up with, with other people and they, they tend to get stuck there. Those stuck places show up in the treatment as enactments. Um, it's gonna, I, if I were to be complete about this, I'd have to talk all about dissociation now. I don't think I, I if, you, if you want to, you can ask me about it after I finish this part, but let me, let me not go there quite yet. So um, an enactment is, uh, is a, is a, a reflects a certain lack of freedom. As I said, both the patient and the analyst are involved in it. And the reason it's important um, is that, first of all, there's the problems in the person's life are, are sort of condensed there. Like I said, they're, they're stuck places. But also the parts of, uh, of, our, of our minds, um, anyone's mind, that um, get involved in enactments are parts that can't be formulated, using that word that I used in another context a minute ago. They are unformulated, but they're forcefully unformulated. They're, they're, they're made to remain unformulated. Um, and so you can't think about them because they've got no symbolic representation in the mind at all. They are what Sullivan called not me. Um, uh, Philip Bromberg, my good friend and colleague, and I both use uh, Sullivan's nomenclature here. Not me means 
a part of your subjectivity that uh, um, is not part of yourself. In other words, it can't be identified as me. There's me and not me. And not me can't be identified as me. And when it threatens to break into consciousness, what that is when, it's, when, when the field is configured in such a way that not me, that part of you that, that produces the stuck places, threatens to come into awareness, you end up treating the other person as a last-ditch effort to avoid having to feel, uh, feel the, the not me part of you, which you don't want to do because it feels it's not identifiable as you. It feels terrible. It feels like not me. Um, the last-ditch effort to turn away from that is to enact it. For me, that's where enactments come from. So when you enact something, you treat the other person as if they are the, um, the part of you that you can't tolerate. And, you, and it, that saves you from having to feel it's, it's yourself. Now, this is terribly important because you can see that if not me is not within the bounds of self, then there's an important part of experience that can't be experienced at all. Important part of potential experience that can never be given actuality. One of the ways of understanding the, the, uh, uh, what psychotherapy and psychoanalysis are is uh, that they're procedures to expand the boundaries or the range of the self so that more and more of, of the person's subjectivity comes into the range of what feels like me. What feels like me is something I can think about. Therefore, the more, that, uh, the more that is me, the more that is within the bounds of the self, the, the greater flexibility and freedom I have to think about what goes on between me and other people. Now, that word think, I want to just say very briefly, has gotten a bad rap in our culture. Um, I don't mean by think uh, something intellectualized. I think of, uh, when I say think, I mean feeling as much as, as what conventionally we call thought. Um, the, so when I say that you're able to think more, I mean think and feel. Your theory of unformulated experience, and if I recall correctly, your book Partners in Thought addresses the ways by which the field can be expanded. Oh, or... yes, you're right, Anu. I never, you, you, you asked me a second question, so I actually never got to answer the first one. <laughs> that's okay. Um, and the first one had to do with what's, what is it that's different about this book? Yeah, the current one. Um, so I was explaining uh, that back a couple of books ago in Partners in Thought, I was talking about enactments, and that's how we got onto what we just talked about. And what I began to see in my work is that enactments, which now you can understand, um, you know, uh, it's my under it's my way of thinking that. Uh, breaching enactments is a terribly important thing. Well, it's what I began to notice in my work over a long period of time was that contrary to um, received psychoanalytic wisdom, it wasn't insight that changed, uh, that made it possible to think about enactments. You know, in psychoanalysis, it's always been the case that 
um, enactments that you could call them transference and countertransference if you wanted to, although um, I, I prefer the other language. But the idea in psychoanalysis has always been that the analyst is supposed to be in a position to interpret the transference and hopefully the countertransference, that is his or her own, um, uh, own experience of the patient. And when those interpretations are made, you know, what, what this means, the nature of this, this kind of relatedness going on, which tends to be unconscious for both people. When that can be understood, the idea was, then what, what I'm calling enactment or what they would call transference and countertransference could change. Enactment, I should say, understanding leads to change. That's the traditional psychoanalytic model, right? Um, I began to think that things were different. It seemed to me that it was not understanding that made the difference when, when, when somebody I'm working with and I were able to see things differently, to breach an enactment, to have a greater degree of what I call relational freedom. Instead, it was a new perception of the other person. And it was somewhat mysterious um, why this would happen, but it, it did, and I saw it all the time. A new perception. I saw the other person differently, or they saw me differently. I saw myself differently. The other person saw him or herself differently. Um, and, they, and each of us eventually would see the relationship differently. But not because there had been some, some um, interpretation that explained it. Sometimes after this change, um, and it, you would be able to give words to what it was, but it seemed to me that interpretations were not um, the engine of change. That it wasn't understanding per se that changed what was important to change. It was instead a shift in the interpersonal field reflected in these new perceptions, a shift in the nature of the field which allowed the patient or the analyst or both to think differently about what was going on between them, to see, I should say, to see differently. And that seeing that sense of the other person is different than you felt that they were a moment ago could then sometimes be reflected in, in um, what, would, what you would call an interpretation, but it might not be. The shift in the field was the important thing, it seemed to me. The interpretation, more often a sign that the important thing has already taken place in that shift in the field. Okay, so this this uh, this nonverbal thing that happens um, is uh, uh, what I'm calling a, a new perception. You see somebody differently than you did a moment ago. It just it's just there. Um, I could give you an example uh, very quickly. Um, let me think. Uh, oh, one person who I was working with. Um, now I'll, I'll make sure that this is, is completely disguised. And it was actually when I published it too. So no one, even the person themselves couldn't know. Um, this is a situation in which a person um, came to see me and was talking about a relationship with a man um, 
it's a woman, and she was having a relationship with a man um, that was very distressing to her, and it broke up soon after that. She was nearing the age of 40. She wanted to have children. She's very worried, but she's also very uh, beautiful, very, very highly educated, probably brilliant. Um, and uh, I simply wasn't able to find a way of, of um, understanding what might be the problem for her. Um, so uh, in, in relationships with men, because she, this happened repeatedly, she'd get involved with people. It not only wouldn't work out, they, they wouldn't end up treating her very well. Um, and I began to wonder if she threatened everybody that she met, but that, that didn't really make sense because how could she threaten everybody? She was though, um, very, very impressive. What I didn't understand to begin with is that she threatened me. Um, and I had to, to grasp that, which it took quite a while to do, um, and not, not in so many words. One day, I, I was, and I felt, I must tell you, I felt very uncomfortable with this person when she would come to see me. I felt that I was not doing a very good job. I wasn't very smart. We kept going over the same material over and over again. I wasn't find, able to find my way to the kind of vitality that I, I generally feel in, in my work with people. Um, and, uh, uh, one day I, I just stumbled into an attempt to try to say something authentic to her about, about, um, what was the matter. And I, I said, told her, I thought we, you know, that, um, that I thought, I thought that she, everybody has trouble being vulnerable, but that she probably had particular trouble being vulnerable. And I didn't seem to get to know her, be able to get to know her in a way that took that vulnerability into account. I wanted to be able to, to do that. I felt that unless I could do that, um, you know, she was going to see seeing much value in, in what we were doing. She agreed. And so I, I, I um, told her that I really didn't know how I was going to, how we were going to proceed here. And I, I was stumbling around and not very, but making it clear that I, I cared about it and that I was puzzled by what was happening. And at some point her expression changed. And her face um, became softer and more open. Now, uh, I um, uh, didn't have words for that at the moment. I'm telling you, though, in retrospect, what I realized later. And this softer and more open quality probably had an impact on me. I'm telling you now about the nature of the field between her and me. And um, I... Uh, uh, I, I was able to find my, find my way to a new thought about her that I hadn't had before. Very simple. Much, many of the things that happen in treatment that are important are simple. And I just said to her, you know, I wonder if you're, you're, if you're lonely. I wonder if, if anybody, you feel like anybody really knows you. And for the first time, she'd, been, she'd cried over her boyfriend, but it wasn't... Um, uh, it was hard crying, and it was this crying now was really heartfelt and, and deep. And she told me uh, over the next little while that in fact she'd always been lonely. That she and you know what I it turned out that that um, she couldn't tolerate being vulnerable for reasons that had to do with her relationships and her family of origin, which I I will not go into at the moment because it's just you know, we have too little time. But um, what was happening is that she couldn't tolerate uh, anything other than being perfect. 
um, vulnerability was therefore a terrible problem. And she dealt with people in such a way that they felt imperfect. Now, I didn't know it, but that's, of course, what had been happening with me. The field had been configured in such a way that I felt flawed. I felt like I wasn't doing good work. Um, and she could therefore feel, you know, um, that she was her usual self, capable and beautiful and all the rest of it. Um, when we ended up saying, seeing this, and it was, see, it was a perception. The thoughts about it came later. Something happened. So I was able to see her differently and say that thing. I was able to find my way to a new thought about her. But it was the shift in the field that, that came first that made the difference. And that shift led to a new perception. It wasn't an interpretation that did it. Okay. So I, I'm, this is a long way around the mulberry bush, I'm afraid. Oh, that's all right. <laughs> it's, it's what they call a shaggy dog story in other, in other contexts, I guess. <laughs> um, but what I was talking about is what's different about the book that we're talking about today. Okay. Unformulated experience now. What is it that makes it formulated? Well, back in my first book, I tried to say that, um, that unformulated experience was not just about words or formulation was not just about words. But despite myself, I think I did say that pretty much, uh, even though I expressed reluctance about saying it, as if the difference between unformulated experience and formulated experience was merely that the word, it comes into words, and that's, that's the criterion for formulation. Um, well, this whole thing that I'm telling you about in regard to enactments challenged that whole idea, right? Because... What's happening here is that something is becoming formulated for the first time, but it seems to be based on something nonverbal, that is, this new perception. So uh, I, I, this worried me about the, the, the way I'd laid out the theory of unformulated experience to begin with, and I began to, to try to think about how, how might we be able to reconceptualize unformulated experience and the process of its formulation, that is, of, of unconscious becoming conscious, how could we maybe do that in a way that wouldn't require that we base everything on, on words? That's what this book uh, is about. And what I did in the book is come up with a way of describing the process of formulation that um, I could, in which I could include the first formulation I had about words, but also could include nonverbal experience. Um, are you with me here? Yeah. And for our listeners, I'm wondering if you can say more about what you mean by nonverbal experience, because in the book, yeah. you do a good job of explaining how there's, there are different kinds of nonverbal, um, di different forms of nonverbal meaning. Uh, there are, um, uh, okay, let me let me approach that by by uh, going this way. Um, it seemed to me that the problem I had was that the criterion for formulation was was symbolization and verbal language, and that I needed something different. What I settled on was the concept of meaningfulness. Meaningfulness. To me, I gave it a particular meaning. Meaningfulness means 
something feels like me. If something feels like me, an experience I have feels like me, it belongs to me, it is me, it part, it's part of what manifests me. If I feel that about something, then that experience can be used, uh, if it's accepted in that way, it can be used in the ongoing creation of spontaneous living. Now, if it's not felt as me, it can't be used in that way. So the criterion for the difference between formulated and unformulated became, became meaningfulness. One way that unformulated experience can become formulated or meaningful is uh, through words. There is some unformulated experience, and I haven't forgotten your question, and you know, I'll be back to it. Um, one form of unformulated experience has an amenability, if it's formulated, to take on a verbal linguistic meaning. That's what I had talked about to begin with. The other kind of unformulated experience has an amenability of a different kind. If it's formulated, it takes on nonverbal, um, a nonverbal form of meaningfulness. I called the first process articulation, that is in verbal linguistic terms. And the second one I called realization. Sometimes when you realize a new meaning, uh, when it comes to realization, sometimes you can then use verbal language um, to say something about it, but not necessarily. So what, what do I mean by nonverbal experience? I can get back to that now. Um, there's more than one kind, as you say. There are basically, basically two. Um, there, there is um, nonverbal symbolic experience. That's the kind of, that's like a visual image. And by symbolic, what I mean is it has a representation in the mind. So um, nonverbal symbolic experience is, is um, um, something that in, it exists in the mind as a an experience that you can, you can point to. Uh, sometimes those, those, sometimes you can point to them. Sometimes they're conscious, sometimes they're not. But there's a symbolic representation is the point. There's verbal symbolic representation and there's nonverbal symbolic representation, most commonly visual imagery, but there are other kinds as well. Our dreams are, are nonverbal symbolic representations, for example. The other kind of nonverbal experience that um, has gotten more and more attention in the last couple of decades in psychoanalysis is procedural meaning. Procedural meaning is not doesn't have any symbolic representation anywhere in the mind. Um, instead, it, it is what it does. The most common example people give is, you know, uh, how, what is it? What's the knowledge of how to ride a bicycle? Well, it isn't represented in the mind in any way. When you know how to ride a bicycle, it's not because you have a visual image. When you know how to hit a tennis ball, it's not because you have a visual image of doing that, although you could probably create one. But that's not what you know. What you know is the doing of it. We, you, you know, we sometimes we call it muscle memory, but there are other kinds that are different. Uh, most of what takes place between us and other people socially is procedural. It doesn't have symbolic representation in the mind. It's a tone. The tone of my voice is a procedural meaning. The gestures that, that, that come from me um, 
they they come from a place that is procedural. Um, the uh, the ways that we adjust to one another's presence, oh, excuse me, anywhere from the subway to to uh, you know uh, at the dinner table, uh, what we do to adjust to one another's presence is all procedural. Uh, that those things are not they they are not symbolically represented in the mind. So I wanted to talk about the um, the representation or the formulation of nonverbal experience in addition to the formulation of nonverbal experience, and I needed to take into account, therefore, both nonverbal symbolic and procedural meaning. Does that make sense? It it, it does, and I want to make sure that I understand um, correctly what I think is one of the main points you're driving home in the book, which is not just that non nonverbal meaning has has a place in psychoanalysis and in life but that actually it's it it has a life of its own and it's a destination it's an end in and of itself that not everything has to be then um ultimately translated into verbal meaning am i am i understanding that correctly oh yes yeah yeah no it Nonverbal meaning is not a way station on on the on the road to verbal meaning. That is the old-fashioned view. That's a view that began to be challenged only in the for the first time in the 1970s, really, in in psychology, particularly in academic psychology and cognitive psychology. In psychoanalysis, it's still not something that has um, wide or, or complete acceptance by any means. Um, I think most people still rely on uh, interpretation as if that's what makes the difference. Um, but as I hope I've, I've conveyed in the example I gave you in, in talking about it, I think that what the psychoanalytic treatment or psychoanalytic psychotherapy is about has to do with a change in the field, which may lead to new things to say. It may, or it may not, but that change in the field is a valid formulated meaning itself that may or may not ever find language. So, so would it be fair to say that one of the main takeaways of the book is that the real magic of therapy doesn't happen in the words that are exchanged, but in the feelings and in the shifting perceptions that are involved and that perhaps then get put into words after that real magic has taken place? That's right. Um, I don't want to to um, go too far, though, I don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater, because when you do say something new, it certainly it can make a very dramatic difference, too. Um, and anytime you say something new, the, the, the new, the new availability of that verbal representation has an effect on the next generation of clinical events. So uh, even though I tend to think of interpretations or new interpretations as as signals that the important change has already taken place, I also recognize, of course, that verbal interpretations, things we say to one another to help us understand what's happening, definitely have an impact on what happens next. And I, and I think that that's a point that stands out in the book as well that, that deserves attention, which is that you're, you're trying to do away with a tendency to think of the nonverbal and the verbal as mutually exclusive or or separate, but rather that they're that they're intertwined and even not mutually exclusive. Jesus, and you, I, I I think you read it. 
I think I did. Because <laughs> <laughs> did I read it correctly? Yeah, you read, you read it very correctly. Um, I mean, I don't know. I, I won't try to say that it's the correct view of the world. I, right. It's the one I like, but but you understood what I meant. Yes. Um, it, it, it is, you know, that's another whole subject in the book that I, I don't know that we can get into in the kind of detail that I do there in our short time together. But what I want to say is that if you look at language and the nonverbal in the way that I do, which is through the lens of uh, hermeneutic philosophy, um, then each is the um, each is the the it's a it's a dialectical relation. Each defines the other. The verbal wouldn't be possible without the presence of what's not verbal. That's why the thing is the book's called the infinity of the unsaid. On the other hand, the nonverbal also wouldn't be possible without the verbal. Because the only thing that makes it meaningful to say something is nonverbal is that it can't be put into words. Each of these things defines the other very much in, in the way that when, you know, you have a, a, a lamp um, in a dark room, uh, it, it, it illuminates some things uh, in an otherwise dark room, but it doesn't illuminate everything. The light determines the shadows and the shadows are the, are the, sh are the shape of the light or tailored to the shape of it. Neat. You can't say that either one is more, more basic. Um, or think of the water in a lake. The shape of the lake bed uh, the, determines the shape of the water. But the water has to do with the shape of the lake bed, too. So, you know, we've established that in this book, you're, you're doing away with the privileging of verbal over nonverbal, meaning that may have been a feature of your first book. And that makes me want to ask you uh, a bit of a more personal question. And, and this is something I think about with anyone who's who's as prolific as you are, which is that the evolution of your thinking is is by choice made public. And so when when you go back and revise something that you published earlier and that you said with with much conviction and kind of go back and change your mind, um, is that personally difficult? Is that challenging? Well. Uh, you know, um, sure it is, but 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 I, I didn't contradict what I said before. I just um, broadened it. That all of the ideas in my first book are still there. It's just that um, they're they're part of a of a theory that has grown larger around them. So yes, yeah, I mean yes, it's true what you say. I did have to, but it's more true to, I mean, there is pain in, in sacrificing things. I didn't have to sacrifice too much, to tell you the truth. But I had to, I had to decide that I was wrong about certain things. And I guess that's, that there is some pain in that. But it's really much more exciting to be able to think about things differently than you did before for a reason that feels like it's not only good, but necessary. So, you know, we have a little bit of time left, but I want to get in at least one one last question that um, has been on my mind, and it actually has to do with the title of your book. Now, I know that, that the title of your book is uh, borrowed from a quote by someone else, but still, the title of your book is not the infinity of the nonverbal, which is ostensibly the centerpiece of the book. It's the infinity of the unsaid. Is there meaning behind that choice? Sure. 
um, it, it is a way of making reference to the point that I made a minute ago and that you made too about, um, about the relation of the verbal and the nonverbal. To me, um, nonverbal, I would prefer, beside, I would prefer to say uh, um, everything that's not verbal rather than the nonverbal. And therefore, you can say unsaid and, and get, make the same point. Uh, the relationship of, of what's said and unsaid uh, is very intricate. Um, the book gets into theories of language in a way that we can't today. Um, but uh, uh, in the theory that I favor, um, language is a special, uh, has special constitutive properties. Constitutive is a word that gets adopted from philosophy, and it just means that language creates meaning that can't be created in any other way. It isn't simply a set of clothes for meanings that already exist. It isn't just a set of labels for meanings that are already there. It actually, in the process of being used, gives shape to the meanings that it manifests or expresses. Um, so the infinity of the unsaid is a way of making reference to the idea that what's unsaid has everything to do with what's said. So we're almost out of time, but uh, the last thing I want to ask you is what you're, what you're up to these days or what you're working on next. Well, uh, I, I, you know, I'm always writing something or other and I know um, I'm just, I just finished a little piece that I'll give in another week or two. I'm working on another one for a commitment in a month or two, but I have a lot of traveling um, coming up and going to talk about these things. And uh, well, a bunch of times in Italy in the next year and in um, Spain and in Peru and Chile. Um, and, uh, and I'm working on two other books. Um, I'm, I shouldn't say working on them. I'm, uh, they, they're pretty much put together, but I have to decide what more I need to do to them to, for them to be ready. So that's, that's well, and of course, I mean, um, every day I spend from, from uh, morning to night um, seeing the people I work with. That's so you've got a lot going on, as always. Oh, yeah, a lot going on. Yeah. Well, uh, Don, thank you so much for coming on the show. I, I love the book. I love your body of work. And it's, it's great to have a chance to talk to you about it. So thank you. Well, you're very welcome. And uh, Eugenio, um, for those of you, you, probably few of our listeners know you directly, but this is someone who it's good to know. So if you have a chance, you should, you should say hello under circumstances and do the same with me. Um, <laughs> if you run into us at a conference or something, I, I uh, am very grateful to Eugenio for making this opportunity avail to, available to me. Um, thank you, and I've uh, uh, been very nice. Thank you, too. Be well. Okay. <laughs> <laughs>